new season. What, isn't it amazing when our, the church can raise up leaders to give away? Like, that's a really good, yeah, that's a really good thing. Um, and so, yeah, we'll be praying for you. Also, if you are a, if you work in the school system or in the college system, if you're a teacher, if you work in administration, or you work on the school campus, uh, could you stand up? We want to pray for you going into this. Yeah, stand up. Go ahead, stand up, stand up. Yeah, give these guys a huge hand. And if you could stay standing just for a minute, we want to pray going into this new school year that they're, they're a light and salt to these schools. So, Lord, we just thank you for each person here that's representing uh, uh, all these different schools and colleges. And right now, Lord, we just pray blessing and peace over their lives. That this year they'd experience the nearness of your kingdom breaking in on their work and their jobs um, as they're working with students, as they're uh, even praying with kids. Uh, and college students, Lord, we just pray your blessing and peace over them in Jesus' name. Amen. Give them another big hand, guys. Thank you guys for serving and loving our kids. Um, I want to show you guys something. So Kate and I have been here a, a year now, and I'll give you a little update. So last week we told you there's a contract in our house. It's still going forward, and at this point, Kate is actually there, um, like, packing boxes and, and trying to sell off furniture and all that type of stuff. So keep us in your prayers that everything, everything should be finalized on the 29th. But, um, so I actually, I said pray for Kate. Pray for me because <laughs> I have all five kids that I'm working in, in, with. So, so pray for me this week. Um, and it's kind of nice. So like all the way up till then Wednesday school starts. So like, I'm like, yay, go to school. Um, that's why we prayed for teachers earlier. Um, okay, so I do want to highlight one part of our, you could say part of core of who we are in our mission, and um, I want to talk about our strategy today. So our Foothill Vineyard strategy when we, we, is really this paradigm of church health. And I don't know about you, but I've been in some really toxic churches where people around me got hurt and beat up, and our paradigm here is that we would have hel a healthy church. And, um, and, and one of the things that we've pushed into, um, there's, a, there's a huge research study that looked at what are signs of healthy churches. And they came up with these what we call eight quality characteristics. And I want to highlight those because this is what we're pushing into on a regular basis in our staff meetings, in our leadership times, when we're talking about vision and where we're going, we're talking about these eight quality characteristics. And I want to, um, and as I read them, I want you to think about not only what they are, but think about the words that are important are the adjectives, not necessarily the nouns. So the adjectives are first, the nouns are second. You're going to notice that each noun, every church has leadership, right? It can have good leadership and poor leadership, but a healthy church is empowering leadership. And that's what we want to do for, for you. We want to empower you to do what God's calling you to do and be what God's calling you to be. And so it, the, the first word is so important to us. So it's empowering leadership. It's not just having leadership. It's not every church does ministry, but we want to be a church 
that's gift-oriented, which means we want to know how you're wired and your spiritual gift mix to connect you to ministry. Any church that simply just says, we really need people to serve here, and you should do it because you feel guilty, and you should sacrifice. And then overall, what it does in our, in our souls is, I should serve out a sacrifice. It's not based off my gift mix and how God's wired me. And then all of a sudden, there's this false paradigm. We feel like serving Jesus should be a, 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 so difficult. It's so difficult for me to do this. So we want you to do, we want you to be empowered we want you to understand your gift mix and use your gifts for the betterment of the church. We believe that it's, every church has spirituality, but we want to like have ignite our hearts and our souls on fire for Jesus. And we want passionate spirituality. And we want your hearts to be stirred with, with that type of passion for God. Uh, we want structures, but we want functional structures. We want an inspiring worship service, not just a, a worship service that calls us to nothing, but that inspires us to go live out the gospel and all of its radical claims. We want holistic small groups, and that means that, that we're gathering together, they're not, we're, we're learning the Bible, we're caring for one another, we're in each other's lives, and we want to do need-oriented evangelism. Need-oriented evangelism is simply, um, what are the needs in the community and how do we meet them? So if there's broken uh, people, how do we bring healing and wholeness instead of, uh, instead of it just like, hey, it, sometimes there's a disconnect between the way the church does outreach and the real needs, and that's what we want to connect the dots there. And we want not just relationships, but we want deep, profound, loving relationships. So these are the eight quality characteristics that our, our staff is actually finishing up a book right now. And um, we're talking about this stuff every single week. And so I wanted to highlight that for you. Um, if you're new to our church, we'll do a Vineyard 101 class coming up going into the fall. And we'll, we'll talk about these more at that level. So, um, and today we're going to start a brand new series called Philemon. And we're going to tackle the issue of how do we read Paul's letters. And actually we're going to even, it's going to even be more broad than that. How do we actually read the Bible, because the Bible has some really amazing things in it, and then there's other things that we're like, what, what's that? What does that mean? How do we understand that? So today I wanted to talk about historical context. Now before you go to sleep, <laughs> this one is so important. This is so important to your soul as you're trying to grapple with our Bible. And so, just hold on. If it sounds boring, I, I, hopefully we can liven it up a little bit for you. Okay, so Frank and Jared, high, they were high school friends. And after not seeing each other for a long, long time, Jared asked Frank, Hey, how's it been going? How is life? And uh, Frank said, Oh, man, you're not going to believe it. One day, I opened my Bible, and I just took my finger, I closed my eyes, and I pointed... To the Bible and I landed on the word oil oil and so I invested in oil and man did the oils well the oil wells gushed and then I did it again I just closed my eyes and I just pointed and I pointed to the word gold so I invested in gold and man did the mines produce like mad 
now I'm, I have so much money, I don't, I don't even know what to do with it all. And um, so his, Jared's thinking, oh, man, that's amazing. Like, he says, oh, thanks for sharing with me. Jared runs to his hotel room, grabs a Gideon Bible, flips it open, hoping to get some really good financial wisdom and advice. And as he does it, he points, he opens his eyes, and he looks where his finger's pointing, and it says chapter 11. <laughs> now, that's not a real story, but it's a good story. Chapter 11, bankruptcy, okay. Um, but that's how we often read our Bibles. I don't know if you've done, I've said, God, help me, I need help. It, it, how does that apply? <laughs> like, that's how of, uh, often how we read our Bible. Or some of us, we, God, I, I just want to connect with you, and we randomly open it up, and we start wherever our eyes land, instead of actually getting on a reading plan and, and following a process to read a book um, over time. And so when I was 22 years old, I got really serious about Jesus. And I was told... When I started getting serious about Jesus, read my Bible and do it. Read my Bible and do it, which it's, it's good, right? I mean, it sounds pretty good. And then I read this scripture from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7. And it says, a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And then verse 10 says this, for it is, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of women, but everything comes from God. And I read it, and I was thinking, what in the world is that talking about? And I was, in my brain, I was thinking, how did that get into the Bible? What does that mean? How, how does, why do angels care about head coverings for women? What? Like, what are they talking about? So, and the reason why I share this one for you is because when I went to a, a youth conference, I was a leader. It was this youth conference between 1,500 to 2,000 high school kids. So I was a counselor, and I went, and at one of my friends, he was um, also an intern at his church, and he brought his youth group kids there. And at this big, right after worship, the main speaker got up. And as the main speaker, this is a true story, as the main speaker got up, um, he starts talking, and then he notices a kid right over here wearing a baseball cap. Just, no, this isn't the baseball cap, okay? This happened like 20 plus years ago. So this kid right over here was wearing a baseball cap, and the speaker stopped his message. Can you, can, yeah, can you just put that on for me? Just, that's, that's my hat. That looks good. Okay, so the speaker, <laughs> thank you. The speaker stops everything and says, kid, what are you doing? Why are you wearing a hat in here? How disrespectful. And then he quoted 1 Corinthians 11, that a man's head should not be covered. And in the middle of that context, all I could think of is, oh no, uh, that kid doesn't know Jesus. That kid is brand new. He got invited to this conference and all I could think of is that kid is, he's going to wander uh, away from the church and for the next 20 years be broken over 
him being yelled in front of 1,500 plus people. And so everything I want you to know about that moment, it was wrong. Everything. Read, and then the question, and he quoted 1 Corinthians 7, a man, not to, a man ought not cover his head. And so then I was thinking, I wonder, maybe God's trying to inform me that reading my Bible is not so simple. And after the Reformation, the Bible's available to everybody. And reading the Bible is, I would say, a responsibility. Um, we have to kind of put some work and effort into reading our Bible. And there are all kinds of different thoughts regarding how angels might care about women's headgear in verse 10. And I want you to know the world's foremost scholar on 1 Corinthians, it's a guy named Gordon Fee. And have you heard of Gordon Fee? Some of you have. Um, he is a Pentecostal scholar and probably one of the, he's the premier scholar at least for 1 Corinthians, okay? And this is one of his commentaries on 1 Corinthians. Um, and, and the reason why he's, he, he, he did his work, he knows the background, he knows, and he discusses this, this text I'm, I read to you guys, and that this guy quoted, and as he talks about this, um, he summarized it, so he talks about this one verse about women's headgear and, and that situation for four pages on one verse, verse 10. Then at the very end, this is what Gordon Fee says. But finally, we must beg ignorance. This is, how, this is his summary of it. Finally, we must beg ignorance. Paul seems to be affirming the freedom of women over their own heads. But what that means in this context remains a mystery. Now, the key phrase here is the word in this context. The Bible itself and all of the letters of Paul are in a historical context. In a historical context. And, and how we honor, one of the ways that we honor the Bible is reading it through the historical context of what's happening 2,000 years ago. To hear and understand it as the original audience would hear it and, and understand it and digest it. And that takes humility, imagination, and homework for you and me. Okay? Now, this is one of many encounters with the Bible that were far outside my cultural framework of growing up and being raised in, in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Now, it's 20 years later, and I've been reading and studying the Bible. I love the Bible more today than I ever have. This is this is my book. This is life, right? Um, it's more alive today than it's ever been to me when I first started studying it. So I'd like to offer some help today that I would have benefited from over 20 years ago when I was trying to navigate this stuff, okay? So this little series is based off of Paul's shortest letter, a book called Philemon, and as I mentioned last week, there's 335 Greek words here. That's it. Shortest letter that we have from, uh, from Paul. So let me give you a summary of the book of Philemon. And actually, if everybody, if, you, if, you're, if you're sleeping, just you need to hear this part or you'll be lost, okay? <laughs> Slap your cheek, wake up. 
Okay, so Paul, the, the historical context for Paul and what he's writing here, Paul is in prison for teaching about Jesus. Paul's in prison, and during his time in prison, he meets a runaway slave named Onesimus. Okay, Onesimus finds faith through his friendship with Paul, and Paul sends a letter to Onesimus's slave owner named Philemon. This book of the Bible is named after a slave owner 2,000 years ago. Okay? With a Paul is requesting something that was an unheard of crazy request. And that is to welcome Onesimus back as a brother. As a biological and Christian brother and not as a slave. So that's the historical context. So let me just summarize it for you. Three main characters. Paul, he's the author of this letter, and he's sending it to his friend Philemon. Onesimus is a runaway slave that finds faith through Paul. And Philemon is Onesimus's slave owner. Make sense? Three characters. And so Paul, he's in prison. He sends this letter with Onesimus, he writes this letter, gives it to Onesimus, and says, go back to Philemon, your slave owner. Makes sense? That's where we stand right now. Okay. Um, so, I'm picking this letter for its brevity, its shortness, but also because there's some things in this letter that appeal to us, and there's some things that are hard for us to understand for modern readers. Some of these things in this book are like, Nails on a chalkboard. You read it and you're like, <gasps> right? So I, and that's one of the reasons why I picked it. Because some of these things are like, how do we manage this? What do we, and we're going to look at a couple of those issues today. So Dave walked into a drugstore and asked the pharmacist uh, for a cure for hiccups. Any, and uh, he thought, the pharmacist, in a, there's no drug out there I know, but do you have a cure for hiccups? Worst case, worst case ever. Um, and the pharmacist walked out from behind the counter and goes to Dave without asking him and slams him on the back. Bam! And the pharmacist says, are you better? And the pharmacist says, I, I don't have hiccups, but my wife in the car probably still does. <laughs> okay? So he was asking for his wife. Now, the first thing that Paul does here is he knows his audience. Uh, and here, one of the things, the reason why I share that story is because this pharmacist does not know his audience at all. He doesn't understand the context and why this guy's asking. He thinks he assumes he knows. Well, Paul knows his audience. He has a relationship with them, and he's invested in their lives, okay? So, um, we're actually going to listen to... The whole book of Philemon, 25 verses. It takes about three minutes. And um, so we're going to play it from, it's called the Bible Experience from Media Group, and it's really good. So let's listen to this book. If you've got your Bible, turn to the book of Philemon. If you could follow along, that would be great. Otherwise, it's going to be up on the overhead. Go ahead and play that book.
What a great little letter. And the, thing, the fun thing is, with this story, it's all contained in these 25 verses. The whole story, you just have to unpack it, okay? So, on the appeal side, it, this is such a sweet letter, isn't it? You, you hear Paul's love for the church. You hear Paul's love for Onesimus. You hear Paul's love for Philemon. You hear Paul's love for his friends. It's tangible, tender. It's really sweet to hear this letter, right? Also, one of the things I love about this letter, he's going to bat for a slave, urging Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother, okay? That's beautiful, okay? Now, on the other side, on the repel side, maybe the stuff that we today, 2,000 years later, have a hard time understanding. So this is the chalkboard side. Um, Sometimes Paul sounds manipulative, doesn't he? If we're honest, he says, I could command you, but I won't. That's verse 8 and 9. He says, listen to me, I'm old. Verse 9 and 10. He says, if he's done anything wrong, charge it to my account. After all, you owe me your life. Verses 18 19. Okay? So, so sometimes Paul sounds manipulative, and at the end, we're going to talk about those today, okay? Um, also on the repel side, He's returning a runaway slave to his master. In verse 12, now this is not what the abolitionists did of the Underground Railroad. They took slaves that ran away and sent them to Canada, not back to the plantations. And actually, I want you to know, next week I'm going to tackle Paul's issue in slavery, um, and so that's a whole different sermon, okay? So, but for today, let's, li- let's live with a little bit of tension there. Uh, and we'll, we'll get back there. Um, and so today, so there's, there's some things that really appeal to us. These are like, oh, I, I love this book. And then there's other parts today, as we're reading it 2,000 years later, they're like, what do we do with that? How do we respond? What is, that, what is, what is Paul trying to say? How it, it sounds manipulative. It sounds this way. What do we do? So I want to go through a couple things that I wish that I knew over 20 years ago when I started getting serious about the Bible. So I want to give you three key principles of interpretation. And so these are from Old Testament professor John Walton from Wheaton University. And um, John Walton is like amazingly, like he's a scholar, Old Testament scholar, and I love his work. So um, these next three points are from him. And he said this, So this is the first key principle of interpretation. One, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The Bible's for us, but it was not written to us. It was written to other people. In this context, it was written to Philemon and a couple other people and the church that met in Philemon's house, okay? That's who this letter is to, and he makes it very clear in the beginning of the letter. So um, all of Paul's letters are written to other people in a different time, in a different place, who spoke a different language, and that had a different set of questions and concerns than we have today. So number one, the Bible was written for us. It is for us 2,000 years later, but it was not written to us. Okay? Make sense so far? Number two, second key principle of interpretation— The meaning of the text is embedded in its original historical context. 
the meaning of the text embedded in the original historical context. So, um, what it, the question that we have to ask here is, what did it mean to the original audience? You can't ask, what, did it, what, is, what is this letter written by Paul called Philemon, what does it mean today without first asking the question, what did it mean to the church 2,000 years ago? And then out of answering that question, we can answer the secondary question is, which means what's the timeless truth for us Christians 2,000 years later today? What does that look like for us today? Okay? Um, make sense? And number three, uh, third prin key principle of interpretation, the Bible is a context-rich form of communication. So the writer and the recipient's shared a rich cultural context. They shared a context which we don't share with them 2,000 years later. And therefore, we have a little bit of work to do to understand what he was trying to say to the original audience. So a good example is, so today we live in the Los Angeles area, the San Gabriel Valley. And if I refer to the angels and Dodgers, you know what I'm talking about, right? talking about baseball well i don't have to explain it it goes without explanation it's just there's common language because we live here well my wife's in baton rouge louisiana right now and if you say angel there everybody goes look where <laughs> it's a different context they don't have a baseball team called the angels okay different context and if you're in a bakery you say, angels, you're talking about a sponge cake that's super yummy made with egg, white, egg whites, flour, and sugar. It's a completely different context, right? So we have to do some work to understand the questions and concerns and the cultural situation of the readers. That is part of our duty of honoring the Bible today. So when it comes... When we come to a text that's maybe ambiguous or it doesn't seem in keeping with the, the rest, everything else that we know about God from other parts of the Bible or our experience of God's living presence inside of us, we need to do our homework and seek to understand the original historical context that the Bible was written in. Make sense? Um. And so listen to the voice inside your head that says, that doesn't make sense to me. Now, some of you have been told in the Christian church, well, if it doesn't make sense, just to kind of ignore it, pretend it's not there. But you know what? That does nothing for your faith. Because all of a sudden, you're, you're ignoring huge parts of Scripture and you're not wrestling with it. What if God wants to use that Scripture to, to refine you in a really amazing way but yet you're like afraid to look at it you're afraid to touch it don't be afraid people do not be afraid and so listen to that sound that says eh, maybe something's not right here i'm not reading this right and then that's the cue to dig deeper you might find resolution you might not like first corinthians 11 but at least dig at least dig so during the first centuries there was only one source um, outside the Bible to shed light on the context of the Old Testament. Do you know that today we have about one million 
sources, most of them have been unearthed in the, le- in the Middle East in the last 150 years when they started digging there. We have all these resources at our hands as a modern reader, and rightfully so because there's been 2,000 years have passed since these authors wrote these books. You guys still with me? Okay. So we know more than we ever know about historical context, and this creates a little bit of work for you and I. It creates some work. And guess what? We should be concerned about the historical context because I want you to know God is concerned about that. God's concerned about that. The God of the Bible is incarnational, which we talked about last week, meaning he is a God who enters human history um, and entered human history in the flesh in Christ Jesus and speaks to us from within our human history and cultural bound framework. God's committed to speaking to us in ways that we understand. Jesus is the word made flesh, and he takes human language that's filled with cultural limitations and makes, his, and makes it his own language and speaks to us from within it. That's how much God cares about connecting with his creation, with you and me. We have an incarnational God. God's so eager to connect with us, his people. So God understands you and your historical context as well. The things that you uh, have to deal with because you live in a world, this world, the good, the bad, the ugly of this world. Uh, one day Mother Teresa, she felt utterly abandoned by God. She had walked the streets of Calcutta all day long, and this is before her ministry started, and she was frustrated. She didn't want to do, like, she, she just went home um, to her little, little, tiny little place, and she started journaling. And nobody even knew that she wrote this till years later, but this is what she said when she was uh, disillusioned She said this, I wandered the streets the whole day. My feet are aching. I've been unable to find a home. The thought crosses my mind telling me, leave all this and go back to where I came from. Mother Teresa, okay, God understood her cultural context, and it was completely different. She's going to a brand new, completely different cultural context. A different one that she, than she was raised in. Guess what? God understands you and your historical, cultural context as well. God understands the differences between the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where I grew up, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where Kate's at now, and San Dimas, California today, right now. Like, God understands those differences. And he understands the historical context in which we are living right now. You guys, God understands the good, the bad, and ugly in your life, not just Mother Teresa's life. And the end of her story is, you know, the the home that she founded, the Missionaries of Charity, today, this day, it feeds over 500,000 families every year and educates over 20,000 children. And for the last couple minutes, I want to unpack, and this is going to be short because of our time, But I was trying to lay out a framework for us and the rest of this series, okay? Uh, For the last couple minutes, I want to take the parts of Philemon 
that feel like Paul's being manipulative, a little manipulative, and look at the historical, cultural context that he's saying this stuff in, okay? So, today we live in a culture that's individualistic. We live in Western society that prizes individual autonomy over everything else. We value the individual over the group. We value the individual over the group. Now, the downside of that is that we emphasize our, that we don't emphasize the obligations to each other. That's the down, one of the major downsides of an individualistic society. Paul and the recipients of his letter lived in a very different culture, an honor-shame culture, where a group was more highly valued than the individual. Now, I want you to know, we were born into this. If you were born and raised in the U.S., you think individual— and other cultures think the group. The group is more important than the individual. It just depends on where you were raised. It's the, the mindset of that area you were raised. That's your cultural, historical background, okay? So, people, um, and people are very aware of, in, in a honor-shame culture, they're very aware of their obligations to each other. Social obligations, family obligations, obligations to show honor, especially to the older generation. And there's a tendency to feel shame if those obligations are not met. In these cultures, people are comfortable reminding each other of their obligations. And they can even insist of, on being honored. It's okay. So because our context is different, when we hear Paul, we hear Paul's manipulative when he says, he says this, remember in verse 8? He says, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. Okay, so it sounds like it's in an in a individualistic society, it sounds like, what's, why is Paul saying that? But his original hearers would not view it as manipulative at all. He's simply reminding them of their obligations they have and he's saying he's not appealing to them on the, that basis. He's not, a, he's not appealing to them on the basis of social obligations, which we all, if you live there, you would all feel. He's appealing to you on the basis of love. And all the hearers in that moment would say, oh, Wow, thanks, Paul. That's really fresh and new. Huh. Or, Paul says, listen to me, I'm old. Our response today, he's pulling rank, boo, right? Their response would, their response 2,000 years ago in this culture, they would be saying, he's using his high honor to help a person, Onesimus, that has low honor in society. That's completely different, isn't it? completely different. That's a mark of Christ's work in Paul. Let's look at verse 18. If he, Philemon, has wronged you in any ways or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write these with my own hand. I will repay it, and I, and I won't mention that you owe me your very souls. Wow, Paul. So we hear this is manipulative, maybe even awkward, Perhaps they chuckled, kind of like what we just did. Um, but he's stating the obvious. 
and it would be accepted 2,000 years ago with a little bit of irony, and everybody would get it. Oh, it makes sense. That's true. Okay? Because Paul was their connection to faith in Christ. They all got it. Okay, let me give you a couple practical tips today. So, number one, get a Bible reading plan. Um, and actually, my favorite, if you've got uh, an iPhone or something like that, um, download Version. It's a great app, and it's so easy to use. Um, on a regular basis, I just pick the book that I want to read, and um, I'll push play it. It reads it to me. It's that simple, like super easy. Um, or you can just read it there. Um, whatever, whatever you want to do, there's actually reading plans on there as well. You can get through the Bible in a year. You can do all kinds of different things, but download that app. It's a great app. Or if you don't want to do that, just pick up your Bible and start reading. Uh, start Matthew and just start reading. Uh, read the chapter and, and, and wrestle with it a little bit. Wrestle. It's okay. Wrestle with the text. It's okay. That's what God wants us to do. It, it's honoring of the Bible. Okay? Number two, dig into Bible passages that make your internal radar go off. And when we come to a text that's ambiguous, it doesn't seem consistent with what we know about God, it's time to dig deeper. We need to be willing to do our homework and seek to understand the original historical context. So, Dig deeper, guys. Uh, I want you to know that I had a journal. So about 20 years ago, I had this journal. It was called my doubt journal. True, this is a true story. My doubt journal, I had all these things. I'm like, I just read this, and I don't get it. Why? And guess what? Over time, and me wrestling with the text, me wrestling with the Bible... 99% of those questions have been answered. Now, the first Corinthians 11 has not been answered. I've never, I don't think there's an answer out there. Maybe someday we'll unearth some document that highlights the women's headgear issue with angels. I don't know. But for now, like, we still should wrestle, though, okay? So 99% of the stuff, let's, let's dig in. Let's dig deeper, okay? Um, and I want you to know that last week I knew I was going to talk about this issue, and I ordered some books for you. I have, I have seven or eight of these, and it's called the IBP Bible Background Commentary by Craig Keener. Um, so there's, there's books called Bible Commentaries, and what they do is they try to look at the original context, and then they try to apply it to our lives today. This is not that. It's just a background commentary. So it goes verse by verse, and it it's talking about the historical context in which they were writing, because there's 2,000 years difference, uh, time difference, okay? So um, we ordered, these are 30 bucks a piece, suggested donation. If you can't afford one, just take one, but um, these are books for you as you're trying to figure out, I want to read this book. Um, Here's some historical context to help you navigate that, okay? It's really important. So there's a stack right there. Um, and here's our last one. Read for transformation. Now, it's really easy with a sermon like this to say, oh, 
well, I'm just going to read the Bible for now information and try to figure everything out. We're still called by God to read for transformation. Transformation, not just information. The Western church is more educated than any other uh, church in history. Our problem is applying the text to our daily lives. So let's read it for transformation. To do this, we must know the author's original intention in order for us to apply the text to our daily lives and discover the timeless truths. There is always timeless truths that God has there for us, and it's there for us to discover. So let's dig into that. Let's push into that. In this process, again, ask the Holy Spirit to make the Bible alive to your soul. Good? Okay, let's all stand. We're going to sing this song. And during this song, I want to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit